Hi folks, Jason Crane here reminding you about the 100 by 300 campaign. The idea is to get 100 members by the 300th show. Membership is easy. You can do it in one lump sum each year or month to month for as little as 10 bucks a month or $110 a year. If you choose one of the higher levels, particularly the $500 a year or $50 a month level, you'll be mentioned on every single show. You'll be an official sponsor of the Jazz Session. The 100 by 300 campaign, visit thejazzsession.com slash join to become a member today. Once again, that's thejazzsession.com slash join. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is available for free at thejazzsession.com, and you can also become a member, and I encourage you to do so if you like these shows, and if you're listening right now, the chances are you probably do. Uh, if, you, if you dig the show, then the only way to ensure that it will keep coming to you for another 250 episodes, another million downloads, uh, is to become a member. That's it's it's plain and simple. If uh, if you missed one of the reasons to do that, if you go back and listen to the intro of the Sarah Manning episode, that will give you some clues. And uh, if you've read any of my recent uh, blog posts at my my other my non jazz site, jasoncrane.org, that'll probably give you some ideas. But uh, the easiest way to ensure that this show keeps coming to you is to become a member. Just a few days after I moved uh, to New York City, I went to Small's Jazz Club and I saw Bruce Barth and his trio. And in fact, they were there uh, to uh, release the new CD called Live at Small's that Bruce and the trio recorded. And I had a chance to sit down with Bruce and uh, and chat with him. And I think uh, I think you'll like him as much as I did. He's just a, a really sweet, intelligent guy. Uh, one cool thing that happened was I went to see Bruce play with Terrell Stafford's band at uh, the Village Vanguard. And as crazy as it may seem, given what it is I do, I had never been in the Village Vanguard until that moment. I've been to the Village Gate and the Blue Note and a bunch of other of the Seminole Clubs, but I had never been in the Vanguard. And uh, what a great show. Dana Hall was on the show, uh, who's also been here on the Jazz Session. You can find him in the archives. Uh, of course, Bruce, uh, Terrell Stafford, who I've interviewed uh, a few times, actually, but never for the jazz session, and so that's an oversight that needs to get corrected. Also, Peter Washington uh, was there, and Tim Warfield, uh, another two people who really should be on this show. So I really uh, I had a great time at the Vanguard. It was a great way to inaugurate my Vanguard experience. And uh, speaking of live music featuring Bruce Barth, here is the opening cut from the new Live at Smalls record. It's called Oh Yes, I Will.
My guest is composer and pianist Bruce Barth, which you wouldn't think would be hard to pronounce. He and uh, his trio have a new album called Live at Smalls, uh, which was recorded just where it sounds like. features Vicente Archer and uh, Rudy Royston, and it's a really, uh, I mean, just a ridiculous trio and a great record, and it's such a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for it's being on. It's my pleasure, and thanks for having me on, Jason. So I, I guess I'll ask first uh, just about this about this trio um, and and what you look for when you're putting together a band. I mean, by this point, you've played with enough people that I, I guess one thing you could do is look through your address book. But, but what are you looking for no, in terms of qualities? Um, the, the main thing I look for at this point is, I would say, openness. You know, we're talking where it's in New York City and people are on such a high level. So most of these guys we're even talking about are guys that are going to have great time on their instruments great command i don't need virtuos virtuosity but these guys are all going to play on a very high level they actually are, are very virtuosic but um so but more for me it's it's people who are going to um interpret the music in the moment and that's really what i strive for as a pianist to just even um whatever music we're playing to go into it with a sense let's just see what happens tonight this moment, how we're feeling about the music, how we feel about each other, rather than have a, I never go into it with a uh, preconceived agenda, that the solo has to do this, it has to go in this direction. Some musicians think that way and there's nothing wrong with it, it's just my approach is more, let's just see what happens in the moment. So the key thing for me um, is musicians who are empathetic, who are going to listen, and basically for me to be equal partners. So I certainly don't want bass player and drummer who are just going to accompany me. But I also want to be challenged. And it's an interesting thing because a lot of times there's a lot of room for creativity and there are moments, you know, you're not going to love everything that your bandmates do at any given moment. And that's something I've learned with time, you know, not to be controlling. I mean, I love most of what they do, but I'm just saying as an example, I think being an experienced band leader, you get to a point where you just say, okay, it's really accepting who they are as musicians, who they are as people. And most of the time you pick people who you really feel good about playing with. And for me, where magic has the potential to happen. And so is that something that you can... Uh, a situation that you can create even with people you don't know well, or does it require a level of kind of personal familiarity or musical familiarity for that to happen? I think I think with good musicians who are game, it can happen spontaneously. Of course, there's something with um, history together. You might even feel more of a rapport, get to know each other's playing. But I think it's something that can happen pretty pretty quickly. I think maybe what what takes time is um, musicians getting comfortable with the repertoire. Because a lot of it is about um, how much of your mind, your concentration is open to the moment. And if a big part of that is reading the chart or saying, what's the next chord change? Where do we go? Where's the coda? That's going to distract you from being in the moment. So I think that can take time. But actually, that said, um, a lot of my music is pretty simple in a way. There are a couple, like on this, on this new record, there are a couple tunes that are a little bit more elaborately arranged. But um, for the most part, it's pretty open. So the idea is that... Um, we can really make, make of the music what we want. And so if you're in a situation where uh, the folks that you're playing with are less familiar with your compositions, will you tend to rely more heavily on standard tunes or tunes that everyone's familiar with? Um, 
I still I think I have tunes that are easily easily read. Sure. So I mean I love standards, and once in a while, uh, certainly um, it's not that I never play standards. At this point, though, I'm really focusing on playing my own music. Standards can be nice because again, it's something that people can just relax. Um, not have to think what's what's coming next, you know. But I have enough music that's simple and open ended that I can choose those pieces. I think, and usually, hopefully, if it's a gig, I mean, in most cases we will have some rehearsal time, at least one rehearsal, you know. And in this case, Vicente and Rudy, they know my music because we've been working together quite a while. Sure. You know. Has writing always been important? I think so, because for me, it's really connected with playing. Because a lot of the ideas one gets playing, sometimes I'll just be improvising. Come up with an idea for a tune. And say, wow, this might make an interesting tune. And likewise, I think sometimes writing helps you get to some new ideas in your playing. Maybe you'll write a chord progression that、um, is a little less familiar to you, and then you practice it and new things. Maybe I think it helps. Maybe to try to develop your personal language. So I think writing is part of that. Does that mean that you often write away from the piano? Is that how you find these new things that aren't as familiar to you? I do like to write at the piano. At the piano.、Okay. Sometimes I write if I have an idea for a melody, but、um, I do most of my writing at the piano.、Yeah. How do you force yourself into places where you're not falling back on the you know the places your hands naturally go? How do you find the new chord progressions? Oh,、uh, that's a great question.、Um, hopefully, my goal is to.、Um, As a player, not play where my hands naturally go. I'm not saying I, I, I'm not saying I always succeed in that, but it's always a challenge to really lead with one thing I do. And the way my practice is geared, it's towards leading with the ear, because the way I see it is、um, the ear when we sing, it's really directly connected to our feelings, what we are inside. And、um, so, if, if I even if I'm practicing, if I'm playing on the gig, I just try to lead with the ear. Singing through the music,、um, so hopefully that'll keep me away from just playing what falls naturally under the hands. Can you say more about that? How, how do you lead with the ear? Can you talk more about what that means in, in practice?、Um, I think that actually,、um, it's kind of a mysterious thing, because I feel when you know when suddenly you're improvising on a tune, melodies come to your head, and、um, it's interesting. It kind of happens in real time, and so melodies come, and I think that it's something that happens naturally. Of course, you can work on. Developing your play, playing melodically, maybe learning to develop melodies, but part of it just happens where the melody flows. I forgot there was a European classical musician who said that all the other aspects of music can be studied and improved on, but the melody is a gift from God. <laughs> <laughs> I really like that quote a lot. You know? Yeah, that's great. So I'm not saying my believe. I'm not saying my melodies in my head are. <laughs> Gifts from God, but I do think I mean the melodies come, and actually a lot of times if I do feel I'm I'm maybe playing more from the fingers, I'll just try to sing, you know,、hmm. play a tune. I, I mean, just sing a solo, sure, because then I think it's something that comes internally, and I think the goal for me,、um, and for many musicians, you know, the goal is to really play honestly. From to me, it means playing from a deep place, playing what I'm feeling, what I'm hearing in the moment. And so that's interesting. In the moment of performing, hopefully there's not a lot of thought. Now there are different approaches to playing. I'm just saying my philosophy of playing, and I've spoken with great musicians who might think differently or feel differently about it. But、um, for me, in the moment of performing, you're listening, you're reacting, you're listening, you're certainly listening to the players you're playing with as well as yourself. But there there shouldn't be. I think there should be a minimal amount of thought 
or evaluation. You know, big goal is to turn off that critic in your head saying, oh, this is good, this is bad, you know. It's just as bad to say, you know, of course one can be self-critical and say, oh man, why did I play that, you know. It's just as, as um, distracting sometimes to say, wow, that was killing, you know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I've done it. <laughs> yes. I'm at the no, top of the mountain. But of course, we all enjoy each other's playing, so it's not sure. like a, if, some, if a bass player plays something really nice, like a nice harmony or... Drummer plays or Rudy, you know, Rudy plays something interesting. Believe me, we'll respond. But in general, just try to be there for the music. It's interesting. You said earlier that you like to be challenged, and uh, so I wonder how you create space, particularly when it's your own compositions, for the other musicians to challenge you. How do you how do you create that kind of space for them to be equal partners and to do things that may surprise you or, or challenge you? Well, th- I think they know because I make it clear. Maybe not explicitly, but they know that I. It's what they they used to call the Miles Davis school of band leading. You hire musicians you admire, you respect, and you you cut them loose. You know, you don't try to say, oh, this has to be interpreted this way. So the musicians know I respect their creativity. And for instance, I would never, let's say if I'm working with a substitute musician, I would never, this is interesting, but I'm, I choose, I don't like to give a recording of my music to a substitute because I don't want them to think, oh, this is the way Bruce wants the music interpreted. If it's, let's say if it's a song, a song they're going to be working. This actually happened recently because Adam Cruz played at my CD release with me at Smalls. And I, I gave him some, actually I didn't even give him charts because Adam's, he's a, a quick study. We did get together and play through the music. Uh, but I intentionally didn't give Adam the CD because of my respect for him, you know. And I knew that, I mean, I knew that Adam knows that I respect his, that I wouldn't expect him anyway to um, interpret the music the way Rudy did. But just out of respect, it just, Adam, I want your, your take on this. And that's a great thing about playing music too, I mean... I don't like to feel, oh, this is really the way I want the bass player to play this or the way I want the drummer to play this. There might be a couple broad things where maybe this might go into 4-4 in this section. But again, um, I again try to really leave it to what the musicians do in the moment. Does that uh, that conception that I, that ideology come out of uh, the way you experienced the music when you were coming up, when you were playing with Stanley or any of the other folks, kind of earlier in your career, or is it a response to the opposite of that? I- oh no, you know it's interesting. Um, I think with Stanley Tarantine, I mean, I felt I felt it was pretty free, but it was a little more it was more set how things went in Stanley's gig. But uh, when I worked with Terrence Blanchard's band, Terrence was very very wide open. You know, that was great. I worked with Terrence for four years from yeah. 90 to 94. And um, Terrence, all he wanted was that the, um, he wanted the band to to stretch. So it was really the same kind of philosophy. He wanted the band to put its stamp on things. But he would never say, I want you to comp this way, I want you to do this. It's basically create a rapport. And, um, and I think most of the musicians I've worked with since then, it's been that way. I guess maybe the one who was more Art Farmer was more specific mm. about maybe he wanted a certain kind of voicing for a chord, 
and maybe I was playing the wrong stuff anyway. <laughs> but I remember Art specifically saying, you know, I'd like this this chord here, this chord there. Um, but the probably the musicians I've worked the most with in recent years in their band, Steve Wilson, Terrell Stafford, pretty wide open, you know. Were there any aha moments for you as a sideman where you said, when I'm leading my own band, here are some things I'm going to pay attention to as a result of your own experiences on the side? I think with all the, pl- I think you get different things from different players, and a lot of it is on um, musical things too, as well as the way people lead the band. That's that's just the wonderful thing about collaborating with musicians is you can, I think you can learn from so many different people, so many different types of things. Uh, with Terence's band, um, we were playing very much this the modern language of the early '90s, kind of what we call burnout music. <laughs> <laughs> You know, so a lot of um, the kind of complex rhythmic, complex rhythmic ideas, a lot of very fast tempos, and kind of split second turning on a dime kind of thinking. Sure. We played, and then the ballads were super slow. The ballads were so slow, you could practically uh, get up and have a drink between beats, you know. I mean, super, that was kind of Betty Carter tempos. That was, so those right. were, and those were musical challenges. And I think, I think a lot of it would, one thing for, um, from Terrence was to have a band where, there be musical challenges, you know. I think that was a band leading thing as well as a musical thing. Um, and then Stanley Turrentine, which was, I worked with Stanley before Terrence. I was one of really the first older master that I worked with shortly after moving to New York. And playing with Stanley, just the thing I got from him was the, um, just the deep feeling. And actually, one thing I really, you know, Stanley pretty much did the same tunes every night, same repertoire. And you know what? I learned it does not, there's nothing wrong with that. Because it just, it was so beautiful. It felt so good. And it was so, so profound. You know, every note was so uh, beautifully shaped and such great feel, such great time. Uh, And that's one thing that uh, I think you get from the older cats. Not only the older cats, but, you know, listening. It's not just the notes. It's how you play them. Now, that might sound like a, almost a cliche, but a lot of times musicians forget that, especially in the academy. Recently, I was playing, I was in Europe playing a seminar, and a lot of my um, more advanced students, I would go out to the jam session after the gig and hear a lot of them play. And a lot of them, it just didn't sound completely together because there was something lacking in just, I think for me it was the rhythm and the phrasing but then in the class, oh, they wanted more data. They wanted more hip scales, more complicated voicings. And um, to me, that really wasn't what they needed. And they didn't want to hear it, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately. So I, I don't think I'll be back at that particular seminar anytime soon. But I really had to, as someone who loves the music, I felt I really had to, to be honest about it, you know. Sometimes we call it the goodies, you know, giving the good, getting the goodies. Which are great. That's kind of a... Kenny Garrett term, you know. Right. And goodies are great, but the fundamentals come first, you know. And I think in some ways, maybe with, there's been such an explosion of jazz materials, you know, educational materials. In some ways, it's been a great thing. And I'm not against having this, there's a great wealth of educational materials, but as long as we remember um, that it's really, it's an oral music um, that's really, it's a folk, it started as a folk music, of course, it's become an incredible art music, as sophisticated as any, any music that I know of. But it's still, there's that element of sound. It's sound comes before written music, you know. Um, if I may give an anecdote, uh, uh, when I was in Terence Blanchard's band, and Terence was guesting with Sonny Rollins at Carnegie Hall, they were playing a standard, and Terence told me that there was one chord change. He wasn't sure what Sonny was playing. And so the way Sonny asked the question wasn't to name the chord. He arpeggiated it. He played the music. He played the sound of the chord. And so for Sonny Rollins, that's the chord, the sound of the chord, not the name. Hmm. So I just think it's important, even if we're using these jazz materials in our learning, which might include, you know, fake books, the real book, you know, which is a tune that has hundreds of standards that people often use that's fine but know that um it's the sound of the music that's the primary thing this is a cliched question that i've asked a gazillion times but 
it seems like we're in a place where the academy has taken on the role that the bandstand used to play in many cases. I mean, there are still those kids go out and play, but it's not like they go out with Stanley or, you know, they don't go out with Art Farmer. They don't, you don't get a chance to play in the Jazz Messengers. Um, yeah. Is there, is there a way for those fundamentals, those essentials that the way you play rather than the notes themselves to be communicated in the academy or is it still you have to go out afterward and do the work on the bandstand you know i i feel strongly about um i think a big question is where is the academy Hmm. you know and i think that many cities you know many cities still of course there are fewer and fewer it's when i think about the masters who lived in new york when i first moved here so many of them are gone you know sure not only of course the the opportunity for young musicians to work with an art farmer or a Art Blakey, Betty Carter, Tommy Flanagan, Hank Jones, or just to hear them on a regular basis. You know, so many of those masters are gone. But what I do think, you know, most of the cities have, you know, many U.S. cities still have a vibrant jazz scene, with older, complete with older players. Of course, the a lot of the older masters are no longer with us. But um, you know, a town like Philadelphia, you have some old great cats. You know, you have. I mean, we we lost. I I, I mentioned Philly because I teach down there. Sure. But even a town like um, we have Sid Simmons passed recently, but Bootsy Barnes, great tenor player, um, and great players, still great players. Like in their middle-aged players, they're not maybe the considered the elder statesmen yet, but they came up with the older players. Some someone like a Mulgrew Miller, right? Um, who uses young players in his bands. So there they're getting kind of that transmission from a player of Mulgrew or Kenny Barron, guys from this generation, who are still around still with us and masters of the music. So they can they can trans transfer transmit a lot of that understanding of the music. So I think I think where it gets tricky is for a musician uh to study in a school that has no jazz scene. And I've seen that I'm not against it, but I'm just saying that if if you talk about guys really getting a sense of what the music feels like, you know, what Duke Ellington calls the feeling of jazz, it's hard to get the feeling of jazz if you're studying in a city that doesn't really have a jazz scene. And especially if you're, in many cases, the teachers themselves didn't come up in a city with a jazz scene. You may get a teacher that studied in one of these universities, big universities without a jazz scene, now teaching. And it doesn't mean they don't have good knowledge of, of certain aspects of the music, but um, I think for anybody who really wants to play it seriously, I mean, it doesn't, I, it doesn't have to be New York City, but I'd say spend some time in a city, city with a jazz scene, where you can get the experience. Um, New York, there's a lot of jam sessions going on in clubs. Again, maybe it's not quite the contact with the old masters, but I think there's a lot of chance just to um, to learn, learn from experience of playing with other cats. How did you make the decision yourself to dedicate your life to this music? 
You know, I think I, it's a, I always wanted to be a musician. I think、um, pretty young I loved playing piano. I, you know, when you're a kid, you're not thinking、oh, this this could be my career. Right. Then teenage, I came up in the period. You know, I was in high school in the '70s, where jazz education wasn't everywhere. Maybe maybe that's the way in which I would have benefited benefited from jazz education. I'm not sure. But、uh, when I was 15, my brother gave me a jazz record, my first. You know, I mean, it's funny because I meet kids now that they've been playing jazz since they were much younger than that. Right. And I was already playing by ear, though, which was a nice thing. I was playing European classical music, but all, all already just fooling around at the piano, trying to figure out pop tunes and things by ear. And then the record my brother gave me was Mose Allison Backcountry Suite, which to this day I'll swear by. It's a great. Masterpiece, little vin- vignettes of the South. Yeah, and I love the record. And actually,、um, again, probably not even knowing the right names for some of the chords, I, I figured out a lot of those tunes by ear. And then I just went through a period of just,、um, I'd go to the local record store back in the days when there was a local record store, and not only a local record store, but there was a jazz department with a jazz guy, a jazz specialist. And I'd say, hey, you know, I just heard about this player, Winton Kelly or Miles Davis or. Bill Evans, could you recommend a record? Or Oscar Peterson,、um, recommend a record? Take home. I, li- I was doing a lot of listening, and it was later I had a chance to study with privately with.、Um, I had the good luck of I met、um, Norman Simmons through some friends, and we used to hear.、Um, I used to hear Roy Aldridge play at Jimmy Ryan's club. Back the last vestiges of the Midtown jazz scene, and I met Norman. I took private lessons with him and Neil Walzer. And both those guys、um, showed me quite a few things, and I was on my way. And pretty, from that time on, I felt this is really something I wanted to do. And、uh, I don't want to stay back in the past, but I am interested in how that that first kind of major gig with Stanley Turrentine happened. You know, I, I think what happens is a lot of these gigs just happen. It's an outgrowth of people you're playing with. I met Dave Stryker, guitarist, composer. I've had a long, my friend, fine musician. Yeah, great player. Yeah, fantastic. We've had a long association. And Dave was in Stanley's band at the time, and he recommended me. And then I did a couple tours and. One night, played Dizzy joined us. The one time I worked with Dizzy, which was a thrill. This was back in the late '80s, early '90s. Wow! And then I worked with Stanley <clears throat> from time to time. I think up until I actually played with Stanley one week before he passed.、Hmm. You know, we played out at Yoshi's, where the week was it was all week with Stanley, and then half the week Steve Turay, half the week Freddie Hubbard. And Stanley came to the Blue Note the following week, and. That、um, he passed Sunday night before getting ready for the last night of that week. Yeah. When you got that call to join Stanley's band, did it seem like the call was at the moment in the movie where things changed? You know what? It was. I, I, maybe not quite that, but it, I was very excited. It was thrilling, you know. And the other thing that was also a big thrill was、um, around the same time I had been doing some gigs with Vince Herring. Alto player and recorded with Vince. That was also that was also very exciting,、uh, working with Vince at the time. And in the last minute, Larry Willis couldn't make a Japan tour. Literally a week's notice, maybe less than a week. They called me to go to Japan. I think this was even shortly before Stanley. I worked with Stanley, and、um, so I remember being on the plane, sitting. And this is really I had never been to Japan. I'd never really toured that much, and 
this was sitting, I remember sitting on the plane behind Jimmy Cobb and, <laughs> and uh, Nat Adderley. <laughs> and then playing poker with Jimmy Cobb wow. on the bus. <laughs> pretty yeah but that, i mean that that is pretty it's pretty heady stuff when you're young yeah did, do you or think not that young did you have a conception enough. of uh, what place in the music uh, it sounds like by that point you had a conception of what place in the music those folks had oh yes yeah very much so yeah you know there's you know you grow up listening to their records and yeah some key key figures you know tarantine and of course that and his work with his brother with Canon, yeah. So that's pretty exciting. When I, uh, I don't usually tell stories myself on this show, but I'll just say that when Let's I lived, uh, we were talking earlier about Japan, given everything that's going on there now. And I was mentioning to you that I lived in this little town called Furukawa, which mm-hmm. has a jazz club, and it has a jazz club because one of Japan's first called drummers was a guy from this little tiny town, and he got sick, and so he came home and he opened a jazz club. And a lot of the big people who came to Japan, even though there was nobody in Furukawa, I mean, it's a very small town, would come to this club. So when I was there, I was the only English speaker this guy knew, and uh, he said one night, there's some jazz people coming tonight who are on tour, can you come? Because I don't have anybody else who can talk to them. So I showed up at the club for dinner, and it was Jimmy Cobb and Eddie Gomez and Jeremy Steig. And... uh, I just because I was the only English speaker in the town. I mean, they didn't need me. They could have talked to one another quite uh-huh. easily. But they entertained this kid who, uh, you know, I was pretty starstruck. You know, the entire time, oh, and sure. I tried not to ask any stupid questions and just point out what the food was. And we had uh-huh. a really nice conversation. But uh, I was always struck by how gracious they were. And in fact, I can now turn this back in your direction to say that that's been something that's really struck me. I was just counting yesterday, and at four hundred something interviews, I've had maybe two bad experiences. Uh-huh. And overwhelmingly, people in this world of improvised music just seem like incredibly grounded, gracious people in my mm-hmm. experience. And I wonder if that dovetails with your experience. Uh, it's certainly been my experience. And I think also, you know, uh, working as an artist, being in a variety of situations, often having to adapt to a variety of situations. And then also, I, th- I think um, most of us jazz musicians, who we've had the opportunity to travel, so many are really... I think world citizens, they're really open to experiencing different cultures, you know, the, just the people. And that's really, it's beautiful, a beautiful thing because, um, uh, when you're on tour, it's something, uh, to travel to a place as a purely as a tourist. And that, that's wonderful too. And sometimes as a musician, you have an instant opening into that culture because you're working with people from the culture. And then as a jazz musician, pretty much everywhere we go, whether it's around the States, Europe, Japan, you'll meet musicians. You'll meet musicians from those places who want to share their experiences. Maybe often I've I've had plenty of experiences, late night jam sessions. I try to keep open to that, hang out and meet some people from the local places, you know, from various places that we go. So I think um, that's just the experience of a lot of musicians. And when I do think about... um, fine musicians they're really some some of the most gracious people i know some i'm not going to say everyone but the the (laughs) (laughs) really the vast the vast majority i I have a list here of the five people i don't like right yeah (laughs) it's after you turn the recorder right exactly (laughs) yeah i don't tell those stories either i mean this week working at the vanguard with terrell stafford it's just his band Tim Warfield Tanner, for example, um, Peter Washington, Dana Hall. They're just, they're great, they're great people. It's, it's a pleasure playing with them, and it's, I love traveling with them. Same thing with, I just was recently traveling with my trio, um, with Vicente and Rudy. We did a, a couple of gigs with Anat Cohen on saxophone clarinet, and it was just such a fun hang, you know, being out with them. Yeah. You uh, correct me if I'm wrong. But my understanding of of your career is that you're often one of those guys who's called uh, because people know they can trust you to play, and so when they need somebody, particularly if, they, as you mentioned, like Larry Willis can't go and it's a week before the gig, but that seems to have continued even to this day, where you find yourself in all kinds of different musical situations. Is that well, you know, actually, accurate? I think that has been accurate in the past, and I've actually in recent years been limiting it more because. Okay. Um, I really would like, to, I want to focus more on playing my own music. And so working with a trio, 
Uh, I have a couple other projects that I've been working. I have a duo with Steve Wilson. We released a record last year. That was from a house concert, right? Yes, yeah, exactly. That's house such a cool concert. idea. Yeah. yeah. Uh, John Posis has a, a jazz society out in Columbia, Missouri. And, you know, there are these individuals who are heroes in the world of jazz because um, you wouldn't think of Columbia, Missouri as a jazz hotbed necessarily, right? Though they do have a good jazz jazz program. Sure. Um, uh, led by Arthur White, who's now their, their big band leader. But um, John has been bringing jazz to Columbia for decades. Everyone, just about everyone, has worked there. And so John... Uh, suggested to Steve and me that we, we record this house concert. He put it on his label. We all, always we always swing. And um so that's we're happy with the way it came out. And we've gotten good response from that. Will you say a few words about Steve? Uh Steve's one of my longest time um collaborators. Steve and I met shortly after we moved to New York. He moved here I think a year before me. I moved to New York in eighty eight. And in those days we had a lot of jam I had a lot of jam sessions in my apartment two blocks from here in Brooklyn. No kidding. Old place, yeah. And um, we had an instant rapport and friendship, and we've been playing together ever since. I think we've played about probably on 10 records, maybe 10 records together, each other's records, quite a few. And I just helped him celebrate his 50th birthday at the Jazz Standard. Yeah. But um, Steve, he's a wonderful player and always inspiring to work with. And so the duo is an ongoing thing. We're going to play at the Princeton Jazz Festival in on June fifth. Oh, cool! So I'm really looking forward to that, and hopefully some other kind of an ongoing thing. I hope that happens. What are some of the joys of that uh, that kind of playing, duo playing? Do I like the freedom of duo playing? Um, because part of it's playing solo, so you can just do what you want. It's nice. The nice thing about uh, playing duo with Steve is that I don't feel when I'm when we're playing together, I don't feel that I'm in an accompanying role. Mm. In other words, the time is there. It's not that I have to lay the time down for Steve. Um, I think we both feel the time in, the, in a similar way. So we just play. I play as much or as little as I want to play. And there's a lot of space, you know, a lot of interaction. Yeah, no, yeah. that's really great. Are there uh, other projects you'd like to mention, Bruce? Yes. Kind of a, a pet project of mine is a septet that I have. And initially, we had I'd, wrote, I'd written some music based on childhood memories of California. Just the, the kinds of things that really stimulate the imagination of, of a young kid growing up. The West, ghost towns, cowboys, sunsets, ranches, all that stuff. And my, my uh, Max Jazz release, East and West, from several years ago, featured some of these songs. And then I expanded this piece into a complete suite. I call it the Western Suite. And we premiered it um, about two years ago with a great band, you know, featuring Terrell Stafford, Steve Wilson, Luis Bonilla, Adam Coker on the front line, along with Rudy Royston and Vicente Archer in the rhythm section. So it's something that um, we've played some festivals. It's not that easy to travel with seven people. Sure. But I do want to record this um, at some point soon. And it would be great to play occasional concerts, which we do. But something I'd like to pursue. That's great. Because it's a lot of fun writing for four horns for a larger, slightly larger ensemble. Yeah. And people who haven't checked out that Max Jazz record absolutely should. Can you talk about uh, some upcoming shows that you have? Sure. Uh, if, if folks are listening to this in real time, this is the beginning of April. Okay. Well, I had list. I'd mentioned the duo with Steve Wilson. And we actually, with the assistance of... A great rhythm section, Ben Street on bass and Rodney Green on drums. We're going to play at Smoke on Smoke Jazz Club, New York's Upper West Side on April 15th and 16th. 
and I'm very excited about that. You know, Smoke being one of my favorite places in the world to play. And then I'm having kind of, I'm excited about kind of a reunion tour with, um, are you familiar with Perico Sambia? Mm -hmm. Great Spanish, probably one of the, the major voices of the music in Spain. Fantastic alto saxophonist and composer. Yeah, and in fact, uh, I'll just mention for the listeners that Alexis Cuadrado, who was on the show just a few weeks ago, uh, Perico Sambayat, is on his new record, which is a non-net project, which is brilliant. So folks yes, can go check that out yes, in the archives. fantastic. Sorry, continue. No, no that, that's, I'm glad you mentioned that. And um, Perico and I, we've been friends. You know, you talk about meeting people on the road. Well, I think the first time I played Valencia uh, with Terrence Blanchard, Perico came to the gig. There's a good chance I'd heard of him. He's from Valencia or Valencia, as they say over there. <laughs> and I, I still remember this day, we, uh, I asked the guys in, um, in Terrence's band, I think it was with, with uh, Taurus Mateen, Troy Davis, we hung out at this little club and we jammed. And I thought Perico sounded great. And we, we've, we did a very long tour shortly, a couple years later, we did a five and a half week tour of Spain and Germany and England. And we haven't played together uh, sporadically, but we have a tour actually with um, a British drummer, Steve, Irish drummer, um, Stephen Keogh. And we're going to play in Spain. We're going to play um, a couple gigs outside of Barcelona, pretty much the, the last 10 days of May or so. So check our websites when we update them, please. <laughs> but um, we'll be in, in Paris, Madrid, Terrassa, Spain, and three days in the Pizza Express in London, in Soho, from May 26th through 28th. That's great. And then Valencia, Jimmy Glass Club, on May 31st. And I mentioned um, the dual gig with Steve Wilson at the Princeton Jazz Festival on June 5th. Very cool. You, um, I wanted to ask you, you said about Smoke, that it's one of your favorite places to play. What, what makes a place a good place to play for you? You know, I think part of it's hip owners, owners who really love the music, and this is very true of Paul and Frank up at Smoke. They love the music, they're into the music, and so they they treat the musicians with respect. And it's a, I love it, it's, a, it's an intimate club. Uh, it's got a great vibe, great sound, and the food's fantastic. Well, that's a pretty good endorsement. So, yes. <laughs> My guest is Bruce Barth. He and his trio have a new record called Live at Smalls. The trio is Vicente Archer and Rudy Royston. And uh, I, I just can't recommend enough uh, checking out Bruce anywhere he plays and with whomever he plays. Uh, I've been a big fan of yours for years, and it's a real pleasure for me to get a chance to talk to you. I thank you very much for uh, doing it. Thank you so much, Jason.
That's music from the Bruce Barth Trio and the new CD Live at Smalls. I'm Jason Crane. This is the Jazz Session presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is available for free at thejazzsession.com. Please do become a member and keep this show coming to you. My thanks to uh, the Respect Sextet for the theme music. They're online at respectsextet.com. Buy all their records. Thank you. And also uh, thanks to Dave Rabel, who is at twitter.com slash Rabel V-R-A-B-E-L. He designed the show's logo. Get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Thank you for listening. Bye.